Well, I'd invite you to get your Bibles out or your devices, your phone or iPad of sorts, and uh, scroll or turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And while you're doing that, I uh, have a bit of a confession to make. I may or may not be extremely ticklish. <laughs> now, my kids are in the front row, and they're like, don't lie, Dad. Uh, I'm ex- okay, I'm extremely ticklish. <clears throat> and so there was this game that uh, we would play, that I remember playing when I was a kid, and my dad would, he would lay down in the middle of the living room floor, face down, and you know, he'd put his arms out, and the goal for uh, my sister and I was to, um, to, to go and poke my dad or tickle him, because he's also ticklish, uh, without getting caught. So when he sensed we were close by, he would you know, reach out and, and just grab any limb or clothing available and pull us in, and he would just tickle us mercilessly. <clears throat> and so to get out of, you know, he's got us, so to get out of, uh, you know, being tickled like that, you had to say uncle. You ever heard that expression? Say uncle. So he would say, say uncle. No, I don't want to. Say uncle. No, I don't want to. Why, why do we make people say uncle that, to get out of, of that? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Um, so I thought I need to learn a little bit about why we say uncle. So I did a little investigative research this week, and uh, it goes all the way back, believe it or not, to the Roman Empire. That's a long time ago. And uh, so when Roman children were playing with each other or picking on each other. And I can imagine, you know, uh, wrestling and, as little Roman children, and one would get somebody in a headlock, and, and they would say, I wrote it down uh, in Latin, patrui mi patruissimo. That's what they were required to say. Patrui mi patruissimo, meaning uncle, my best uncle. Uh, interesting. Uh, Maybe it was a way for them to, uh, you know, make the victim call out for help from a, from a grown-up person, um, or, you know, some way of just admitting, okay, I'm, I'm beat, I'm bested, you're better than I am, you know, I'm just a weak, poor soul, and so please let me out. Um, but it also could be, this is interesting, uh, in the Roman culture, that if you said, uh, uncle that you were giving them a, a term of, uh, that would boost their own self-esteem. You were, you were calling them uh, superior because in, in that culture, um, your dad's brother was, was afforded almost the same rights and privileges as your own dad. So it could be a way of, of just giving status to the person who's beat you in a fair or maybe unfair competition. Uncle. Uh, Crying mercy, you know, it's kind of a humbling thing to do, isn't it? When you ask for help, uh, I think in, in our society, I don't know if you're different than I am, but um, we work really hard so we don't have to say mercy. Uh, groveling doesn't really befit the proud human beings that we are. It, it puts us in this uh, subordinate 
position. Uh, you kind of were bent down and lowly, begging for mercy. It, it puts us beneath our fellow human beings. We're, maybe we're asking for money or more time, or I just need you to be a little bit more patient with me, or I just need one more chance. Please forgive me. Cut me some slack. You hear that one? Have you ever asked for mercy like that? Um, you know, when we feel like, sometimes when we feel like we are in deep, deep trouble, in, way over our heads, um, sometimes when we feel like we need to cry out for help, or we need to cry out to be rescued from something, or freed from something, or saved from something, we, we call uncle, we cry uncle, we, we call out uh, mercy, and we exclaim it out to God, God, help us. I remember, you know, when, when national tragedies strike or devastating uh, hurricanes, you know, I remember back in, in 9-11, the Sunday after that happened, the churches in our country were full to the brim of people saying, uncle, mercy, help us, God, we don't know what's going on. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. There's sometimes in our lives when we feel like we just need a mercy filling, that we want God to save us. We want God to rescue us. We want God to lavish upon us all of the mercy that He can muster. That's our text this morning, points to mercy. It's Matthew uh, Chapter 5, we are in, it's a one-verse text again this week, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus promises us mercy. But if you look closely at this beatitude, it goes in a different direction than we might expect. Uh, there's nothing in the verse that we just read, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's not telling us to cry out for mercy, is it? Its beatitude talks about mercy overflowing from within us. It's not a request, God, I need mercy. Jesus points out that those who are overflowing with mercy will also be shown mercy. So if you recall our discussion from last week, let's look back at the Beatitudes. If you, if, if you, if you look at the Beatitudes, we recognize that, that there's, there's all sorts of different ways that we could uh, categorize uh, these specific Beatitudes, but the picture that I have in my mind as, as we're talking through in this series is that there's two groups of four. The first four Beatitudes, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. All, all of those point to a, a void. All of those point to some sort of empty place in our life that we recognize that I, I don't have anything that it takes to fill in this void. God's going to have to fill this void for me. Then the second four, uh, 
after verse 6, where it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that deep desire to be filled, to have that empty space filled with God. After that, it says, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. Those all point to an overabundance of something, that God's righteousness has come into our life so powerfully. He has given us so much mercy. He has changed us radically. He has filled that empty void in our life uh, with mercy and purity and, uh, and, and the ability to not just be people of peace, but people who extend peace, be peacemakers in the world, that, that these are the things that are overflowing. And the first one that we're talking about today is mercy. Blessed are the merciful. God fills us with His righteousness, and mercy is part of that filling. So mercy comes to us from God as pure blessing, and in our ability to act mercifully to other people, our ability to, to grant forgiveness to other people, our ability to extend compassion to other people, our ability to give freedom to other people, even when they may not deserve it, it comes from God. It's not of our own accord. It's the blessing and the filling of God in our life. See, mercy is the fruit of a, of a broken heart. It's the fruit of a soul that, that hungers and, and thirsts for God. Mercy, Jesus says, comes from mercy. The picture here is that God has filled us with so much that it's overflowing. Mercy, overflowing. And so we extend it to others. And when we're able to be merciful people, compassionate people, kind people, God promises then to show mercy to us. Have you ever been asked for mercy? This is a much different position than being the one asking for mercy. When, when somebody comes to you and says, I, I need more time, I, I need more forgiveness, I need help with this, just extend mercy to me, please. It's kind of a compliment to us. Once in a while, we think that, oh, I'm now the power broker in this. I, I have some control over this. The Bible is full of what we might call mercy transactions. Um, one example that I was thinking of is back in Exodus. The people had found their way into Egypt and <clears throat> out of need they were in Egypt. And over time, the Egyptians commandeered them, the whole people group, as their workforce, slave workforce. 400 years, people of Israel suffered in bondage, uh, in slavery to the Egyptians. And uh, God called Moses, remember the story of the burning bush, God called Moses to, to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And they bantered back and forth for a while, but eventually, uh, the people exited Egypt. God, through Moses, 
led the people out of Egypt. And they found themselves in the wilderness. And their first destination upon leaving Egypt, God had said, after you come out, I want you to meet me at the mountain to worship, to praise and to glorify my name and and my power for leading you to this particular place. The people left so excited. It wasn't long into their journey that they started to grumble. There's no water to drink. There's no food to eat. And God kept providing. Well, they made it to the mountain. And, uh, and Moses went up Mount Sinai to meet God. And God etched his covenant law onto a set of stone tablets, gave them to Moses, said, I want you to take these back to the people. It wasn't that long that Moses was up the mountain, but, but in the meantime, the people got a little bit restless. They got a little bit bored. They needed something to uh, satisfy uh, a religious entertainment itch that they had. They, they needed Aaron <clears throat> to fashion them a golden calf that they could worship. So Moses comes back down the mountain from meeting God carrying these two stone tablets of the covenant, the description of God, God's mercy and love and grace for these people's lives. And Moses comes down and he sees them cheating on God. He sees that they've grown bored, that they've turned their attention, and now they are celebrating and dancing around this golden calf. And Moses has a fit and he He throws down the stone tablets and just shatters this covenant into bits. And he wants who's ever responsible to pay the price. And you read a little bit in Exodus, and it really seems like it really seems like God is done with these people. That God is done with these fickle and these faithless people. But we see we see a mercy transaction. God makes a mercy move to these people. He says, Moses, how about we try again? Let's try again, Moses. I I want you to meet me on that mountain again and find two more stone tablets like that and bring them, and I will etch that covenant back into that stone. Meet me on the mountain again. So Moses he does that, and he goes up the mountain. And the first thing that God does when he gets up to the top of that mountain is God reintroduces himself to Moses. It's Exodus 34, 6. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate or merciful, the compassionate and mercy, and similar word here, and gracious God, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, merciful, and gracious God. God introduces himself as one who is compassionate and gracious and merciful. See, it's only by the mercy of God that this relationship continues. It's mercy is what gets us to tomorrow. Mercy is what got these people another day. But this really, it pushes against what we're taught to believe. 
Uh, and that's why our series is called Basic Retraining. You know, if we listen to the powers that be in the world, they would suggest uh, that they don't really admire mercy. They, they tell us to get the job done at all costs. It doesn't matter how you get the job done, just get the job done. Mercy is for the weak. That's what the powers that be in the world would tell us. Leave emotion aside. Don't let your emotions uh, shepherd your actions. It's just business. Just get it done. Be successful at any cost. It doesn't matter if you have to steamroll over people. They admire the ruthlessness. And if they don't really admire ruthlessness in other people, um, the world will excuse it in its own behavior as a show of strength of character uh, and the resolve. Which, which makes me wonder, do we need some retraining in this area? Because we live in the society that tells us that mercy is for the weak. And so it leads me to ask the questions, do Christians today really love mercy? Does it, does it matter to us? Uh, or are we people who succumb to the world's way of thinking and buy into the promises of the world that, that teach us that revenge is so sweet, it's so delicious, and that... Uh, Cruelty and harshness will, will get us ahead and let us be people of success. It really saddens me when I listen to what the world says about the church. It really saddens me when I listen to what the world says about Christians. I mean, Christians, as Christians, as followers of Jesus... We are called to live differently than the rest of the world. Where the world may respond to hate with hate and anger, a follower of Jesus is called to respond in love and compassion and mercy. Certain behaviors in our life if there's no distinguishable difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, then what is the world to think? When, when they look upon us and they know that we profess to be Christians, <clears throat> if our lives aren't any different than theirs, then we get labeled as what? Hypocrites, right? So it saddens me that Christians are, are regularly tagged as people who offer judgment in the place of love. That we are people who uh, offer condemnation in the place of mercy and grace. And, and if we're really honest with ourselves, Christians and the church, if you will, are really famous for being judgmental. Um, why is mercy not more obvious in our behavior? Why is it so easy to be critical and condemning of people who mess up their lives? Why are we so sporadic in our acts of mercy? Those are questions that are just kind of rattling around right now. 
And I was thinking about potential responses to those questions. One, uh, I think is an obvious response, is that all of us, you and I, make mistakes. Uh, we sin. We rebel against God. We miss the mark. Uh, and we don't, we don't like to be caught. And so, when we don't like to be caught, <clears throat> and we know we're people of sin, it's, it's easy to distract other people by pointing our fingers at other people's sin. I'm going to take attention away from myself, and I'm going to point at somebody else's flaw and failure to take the heat off of me. That, that's one response as to why mercy doesn't show up more often in our, in our life. Or, or maybe it's... Uh, Maybe it's because we have this passion, a burning passion for the cause of God in this world. We, we really, truly, down deep, want the world to be a better place. We want people to be saved by the grace of Jesus. We want people to live justly. We want people to live a holy life. But we're, uh, we're kind of impatient with God's method. We're a little bit impatient with God's timing on things, so we start to take shortcuts. And when we find somebody who's not measuring up and living up to the standards that we think that they should, we let them have it. All guns a-blazing. And we make sure that they know that what they're doing is wrong. Anything goes. The enemy must be defeated. We have a passion for God's cause in the world, but we're a little impatient with God's timing. We'd rather take that timing upon ourselves and let people have it. Or maybe, maybe it's because being merciful doesn't feel moral. Follow me here. Being critical uh, condemning other people feels more righteous than being merciful. You feel good about being able to take a stand against the evil that you see out in the world or in somebody's life in particular. It makes you feel good. Maybe we respond these ways because being a person of compassion and mercy and forgiveness <clears throat> doesn't necessarily make us feel good because it doesn't feel very moral. Taking a stand feels more righteous for us. You don't get the same rush of a feeling when you extend mercy. It's not as exhilarating or as exciting as just you know, waving your bony finger in somebody's face or walking around the street carrying a sign that says, if, you know, if you don't turn, you're going to burn. You know those kinds of signs I'm talking about. There's not really moral satisfaction in being merciful like there is when you just unleash on somebody. So I think there's a, there's a flaw in our thinking 
And the flaw is something like this, is that we think sometimes, we are fooled into thinking sometimes that if we show mercy to somebody who sins differently than we do, it means that we're condoning what they're doing. But that's not true at all. Showing mercy does not mean that we condone sin or that we condone evil in, in somebody else. Extending God's love and care to those who sin differently than us does not mean we approve of their behavior, period. Mercy loves them as another human being, while at the same time it's pointing them to Christ. Mercy connects people with the forgiveness that God freely gives to all of us. See, we need lots of help with mercy. We need practice. We need instruction on it. It's very rare that anyone has been condemned or criticized into a better way of life. But over and over again, we're forgiven into a better life. See, when we attack people, and we wave our fingers at them, and we unleash you know, the, the wrath of God through us upon them, <clears throat> a lot of times that puts bricks up in that wall that divides us instead of taking the bricks away to open up conversation. Mercy opens the conversation. Condemnation closes people off, drives them further away. Unless we're convinced that mercy is the way of the cross... Unless we're convinced that mercy is the way of Jesus, the way of blessing, we're going to continue to try and use the world's method of cruelty and harshness to get people to change. There's one, uh, there's multiple stories, but one that, that comes to mind is uh, John chapter 8. You probably remember the story. Uh, some scribes and Pharisees and and other people in society, well, they, <clears throat> they bring a woman to Jesus. Jesus is in Jerusalem uh, teaching in the temple, and so people bring this woman and fling her in front of Jesus and say, we caught her in the very act of adultery. Apparently, she was alone at the time. So they brought the woman. Where's the guy? The law says that we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? They've already rendered the verdict. They've already caught her in her sin, and they're bringing her to Jesus. They are ready and willing to throw the stones that they are holding. We're going to condemn you. What do you say, Jesus? They wanted to trap him. They wanted to see what he would do. What does it say? It says, Jesus didn't even respond right away. He, he knelt down, and he just started writing something in the dirt. Now, that's a little bit odd of a response. Have this angry mob, probably this crying woman in the scene, and Jesus bends down to write something in the dust. What do you think he was writing? And he stood up, and his response was, let him who is without sin among you 
throw the first stone at her. That's all he said. Let him who is without sin among you throw the first stone at her. And then he bent down again and started writing in the dirt. Now that's a bit peculiar. But John reports, and this is such a scandalous story that that this story is in brackets or in italics in your Bible because it's such a scandalous story that that they were kind of undecided as to whether or not that this should be part of the final record of, of our Scripture. And John says that the men who were there holding the stones, they started to leave. They peeled off and went home, starting with the oldest down to the youngest. Thud. You could hear the stones hitting the ground. Everybody left. And then Jesus looked up at this woman He said, where are your accusers? She said that they're all gone. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. But go and sin no more. See, Jesus does not dismiss what she's done. He doesn't say that what she did doesn't matter at all. He even labels what she did as sin, implying that she was guilty of what she was accused of. In Jesus' example, mercy does not explain away sinful behavior, excusing it as if it didn't happen or or denying that it was serious business. But on the other hand, mercy acknowledges that wrong has been done and that punishment is actually justified, but it deals with it more gently. Mercy doesn't always mete out to people what is deserved. In this case, the woman could have been stoned, and Jesus says, I forgive you. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. We who call ourselves believers, I think we know about sin. We we know that we mess up. We we know, I, I know of my life personally, I can be a jerk once in a while. I know that I can be harsh to people. I, I know that I know of all my flaws and all my failures. I don't think you're any different than I am. You know the issues with which you struggle. But we also know that it's God's mercy that helps us move beyond some of these things. It's God's grace and compassion and forgiveness in our lives that that helps us to leave these things behind and live a life of, of freedom in Him. It's God's mercy that saves us. And so we are to extend this mercy to other people. I think it's uh, Dallas Willard who says, mercy is a banner of glory. Mercy is a badge of honor. Mercy 
is good news to a guilt-ridden, neurotic world that desperately needs to hear one in authority say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This, this kind of mercy doesn't fit the world's ideal of strength. But it's in this beatitude that we find the gospel message. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is a, it's really important in the gospel of Matthew. In the gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus traveling around the countryside, and I think Jesus' eyes are, are looking for evidence that people are following what was, what was uh, given to them as law in the Old Testament, that, that God loves justice, He loves mercy, He loves compassion. He wants people to be sold-out followers of His. I think Jesus is walking around Israel looking for evidence of this. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, He's walking along. He, he comes upon Matthew, who's a tax collector. Matthew is a sinner. The Pharisees and the scribes and the religious professionals, they don't like this guy, Matthew. Matthew is anti religion to them. He is in league with the Roman Empire who is oppressing them. And Jesus says, Matthew, I want you to be on my team. I want you to come follow me. I want you to leave that life behind, and I want you to live and walk and follow me. And the Pharisees, they just didn't like that. They couldn't get it through their minds that Jesus would do that, that, that Jesus would invite this sinner to, to be part of what was going on, that Jesus would invite this tax collector to be part of the movement of Jesus through Israel. And so they raise an objection. And uh, Jesus says, okay, I want you to go back and I want you to study your Bible some more. Pay particular attention to Hosea 6, verse 6. Well, he didn't really spell that out, but that's what he was driving at. Uh, Matthew uses Hosea 6, 6 twice. The second time that he uses that, that he quotes it, is over in Matthew chapter 12, uh, the first several verses. And <clears throat> so this is a situation where uh, the Pharisees are confronting Jesus about uh, harvesting on the Sabbath. And, and the Pharisees raise this objection because clearly uh, harvesting on the Sabbath is work and, and you're not supposed to do that. And so they're asking Jesus about this. And, and, and Jesus looks at him and he says, you haven't done your homework, have you? You haven't, you know, back over there in chapter 9 when I told you to go look up Hosea 6.6, 6, well, did you do that yet? And did you let that sink in? It says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, acting mercifully to other people, being compassionate and benevolent to other people is a little bit more important than all the ceremonial religious pageantry that you're paying too close attention to right now. And maybe the prime example that we see is, uh, is over there in, in Matthew uh, chapter 18. And, and in this story, uh, Peter comes to Jesus. It's not the Pharisees and the scribes. It's Peter who comes to Jesus. And he wants to know, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody who's wronged me? Seven times? 
Now, in that culture, you were supposed to give people three chances. You could, give, you could forgive somebody three times for the same offense, and after you've forgiven them a third time, if they do it again, you are under no obligation to forgive them again. So Peter, he's thinking, hey, well, if I double three and I add one, that's got to be really spiritual, right? So he says, Jesus, am I supposed to forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, 490 times. That's an absurd kind of a number. The real answer to Jesus, uh, the, the real answer that Jesus gives Peter is found in the parable that he tells right after that. He tells the story about a king who has a servant, and the servant, in today's dollars, owes the king about three billion dollars. That's a lot of change, isn't it? So, obviously, this guy will never be able to pay back three billion dollars, and so he pleads for mercy. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want you to sell my family into slavery to settle this debt. I just, I need more time. I, I can, I'll pay you back. I promise I will. And the king has mercy. And not, not mercy that, okay, let's figure out a good payment plan for you, servant. I want you to pay this much a week for, well, I guess for the rest of your life. No, he takes the debt and he rips it up. Gone. Free. That three billion you owe me, you don't owe me a dime. And this servant Having experienced this mercy, he leaves the king's presence, and as he leaves, he comes upon somebody who owes him, oh, about five grand. And he grabs the guy by the throat, and he says, you are going to pay up. And he had the guy thrown in jail because he couldn't pay. And this guy also pleaded and begged for mercy, and he would have none of it. Well, that story got back to the king, and we read that the king revoked his forgiveness and brought that servant back and said, didn't you get it? I released you of all of this debt. I set you free. Shouldn't you treat your fellow humans the same way? There's a lot that we could, a lot more we could say about mercy. Um, but as we finish up this morning, I want to leave you with the picture of the word mercy. In the Hebrew text, the root word for mercy, uh, the root word for compassion is womb. It suggests that there is an emotion involved with mercy, something like how a mother feels the love that a mother feels for her unborn child. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God is ready to be done with the people of Israel. They continually turned their back. They continually went a different direction. They continually cheated on him, worshipped other gods. But the mercy, the compassion that God felt in his womb kept bringing him back, kept provoking him to extend more mercy to these Israelites. The connection 
that God had with his people was too great to disconnect and to leave behind. See, God loves us even when we're unlovable. He, he chooses to bear the suffering uh, that comes from, from being in covenant with us. And how do we know this? We, just in the person of Jesus. God, who, who could choose to remove himself and remain at a distance, he did the opposite. He came near to us in, in the person of Jesus. So those who are merciful, they love deeply with the love of God. Then over in the Greek text, the, the word for mercy is elemon. It, it gives us the picture of, of a flask pouring out oil. Mercy is a pouring out. You don't just feel sympathy. You don't just look at other people's condition and, and feel sorry for them. Mercy is pouring out. Mercy provokes you and, and drives you into tangible actions. Acts of kindness, words of grace, forgiveness, a hug, help with groceries or gas money or whatever it is. See, Jesus was a merciful person. He didn't just feel badly for people. We see the picture of him in the Gospels, touching the lepers, making himself unclean, healing people, feeding people, meeting them at their need and forgiving their sin. And as we practice mercy, Jesus says we enlarge our capacity for it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It's a picture of us filled to the brim, and we have mercy that is overflowing. The people of God said, Amen. Amen.